It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Elon Musk goes thermonuclear. Two, Georgia is Jim Crow 2.0. In Florida, it's illegal to use the word gay. In Florida, African American history has been banished. And in Tennessee, it's illegal to be gay in public and other lies. Three, Chaos in game theory in college football. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. The Patriot Awards in Nashville, Tennessee were last week, and man, it was a really good time to dress up like a cowboy, wear a big belt buckle, wear a cowboy hat, party with my coworkers, and see some of you in Nashville. Thousands of Fox News fans turned out for the fifth annual Patriot Awards, and I met some of you listeners here to the Will Kane podcast. It's always an exhausting three or four days because you go out at night, and you hang out with Jesse Waters or Tommy Laren, and you get up early in the morning to do Fox and Friends. In between, you get the opportunity, and I mean that, the opportunity to shake hands, exchange pleasantries, and meet many of the listeners of the Will Kane podcast or viewers of Fox and Friends. And Nashville is pretty cool, Nashville, Tennessee. But I do have this concern that Nashville is in its golden era. Anyone that's ever lived in Austin, Texas has believed that their moment in Austin, Texas was the golden era of Austin. When I was in Austin in the 90s, our parents would tell us that the real golden era of Austin was in the 70s. And I think it's probably true. If you were looking for the perfect time to be in Austin, it probably was the 70s. But by the 90s, it still was quirky. A liberal bastion in the middle of a red state. It was basically Willie Nelson. It was still cowboy country, but hippie. It wasn't yet hipster. But Austin, since that time, has become your standard run of the mill, liberal, far left, crazy city. I remember the big debate when I was in law school in Austin was whether or not bars should be required through the force of municipal law to banish smoking. And I remember that my ideological streak thought no government should tell a private property owner, you know, the course and nature of his business. If you want to allow smokers, then you allow smokers. And if you don't like being around smoke in a bar or restaurant, then choose a different bar or restaurant. I will admit to you, I do appreciate coming home from a night without my clothes smelling like they got drugged through an ashtray. But back in the day, I didn't mind. I mean, secondhand smoke, we inhaled it by the packs. 
But now what Austin has turned into is a city where there's outdoor yoga in the middle of 6th Street with everyone wearing masks. It's making sure you've updated yourself on the sixth COVID booster. It is in front of this house. We believe love is love and Black Lives Matter and the Ukraine is of paramount importance to foreign policy. It is standard fare, indistinguishable from San Francisco, liberal insanity. And I think that Nashville is probably now in its golden era, transitioning from a small regional town into a nationally cool city. When you walk through the airport, it's just as though the pizza shops are a little too cool. The bachelorette parties, a little too popular. The country music honky-tonks, a little too polished. You can tell what was once authentic and real and natural and organic has become commoditized and polished and turned into, if not the monoculture, a polished belt buckle on its way to the monoculture. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Nashville. But what I feel like is you're probably on a timeline. You're probably have a ticking clock. And I've heard from many of you over the weekend who have either lived in Nashville or once lived in Nashville and said, I'm on the right path. In fact, it's already started to turn. And I'm worried for Nashville. I'm worried that one day you're going to wake up and find yourself Austin. Story number one, Elon Musk goes thermonuclear. As of this morning, Monday morning, Elon Musk has said he will be filing a thermonuclear suit against liberal hack attack dog Media Matters. This is for defamation and fraud and organizing an ad campaign boycott that manifested in Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Comcast, NBC Universal, Lionsgate, Paramount, and IBM all pulling their ads off of X on Thursday and Friday of last week in almost a coordinated propaganda push. These big advertisers bent to the characterization of media matters that Twitter or X had become an anti-Semitic cesspool. It's best characterized by far from objective, but rather propaganda rag, entertainment magazine, variety, that they characterize the issue as such. Quote, Elon Musk's support of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory has been confirmed by a, quote, research company. And that muscle, that threat, has manifested first in an ad boycott, and now it looks like, in turn, a thermonuclear lawsuit. Now, the thing that is so valuable about X is our ability to see the truth. But you don't get to see the truth without looking through the ugliness. That is the truth, that it is often an ugly truth. You have to be able to wade through falsehoods. You have to be able to endure offense. You have to be able to brush off hatefulness in order to pay the price for the opportunity to know the truth. If there is a walled garden or a guarded fortress 
where the sentries that stand out front are the ones charged with protecting you from hateful speech, but then also deciding what is factual, you will never get to see the truth. I think maybe the best example of that is the revelation of again of late last week of the January 6th tapes. House Speaker Mike Johnson, fulfilling a promise of his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, has released the full 40,000 hours of tapes around January 6th. Now, the picture that has probably been formed in your mind, the picture that has been splayed across CNN and the New York Times, is that what occurred on January 6th was nothing short of an attempted coup, an insurrection. Now, what did occur on January 6th was a riot, a condemnable event with vandalism and verbal threats, with many unruly individuals making their way into the Capitol. But that characterization is incomplete. It's not the full story. And in fact, once you have a chance to begin to see a few other hours of the 40,000 hours of tape, you begin to wonder if that's not an exaggeration, if it's not hyperventilating, if not you've been manipulated. These other tapes that have now been released from January 6th show people calmly entering the Capitol, casually walking down the hallways, saying hello to Capitol Police as they pass. In some cases, walking through doors opened by the Capitol Police. Now, that doesn't negate the ugliness, the violence, the riot in other parts of the Capitol. But it certainly, what it does is give you a fuller picture into something that has been described as solely, exclusively, and only as an insurrection. If you were even to mention that you think maybe it's not an insurrection, that it more fully amounted to or was more accurately described as a riot, well, then you were described as a threat to democracy. And this characterization, this exaggeration of a coup has manifested in people sitting in prisons in Washington, D.C., January 6th protesters, that it's pretty fair to say in many cases have been denied the normal course of due process in the United States of America. And even worse, it's resulted in at least five January 6th defendants committing suicide, either because of the hopelessness of their legal situation or the characterization of them as insurrectionists. Now, listen, I want to reiterate, probably for the third time in this conversation, that there were some ridiculously over-the-top and criminal behavior that took place on January 6th. But the, the, the matter of debate is whether or not that is, again, the only offering on the menu for descriptions of January 6th, because these new 40,000 hours of tape suggest 
there's more to the story. And that part of the story can't just be dismissed because the other stuff we saw was in part true. There are other aspects of this story that are also true. And everyone is being treated under the same characterization as an insurrectionist. Let's return to Elon Musk. Media Matters is a liberal hack attack dog that in a more charitable description is often described as a media watchdog. In a completely fictionalized and propagandist description, as in that of Variety, Media Matters is described as a research company. Media Matters is a far-left nonprofit funded by, in no small part, George Soros, whose explicit purpose is to monitor conservative media, and in most cases, horrifically distort things that are said on air, publish articles of these distortions, and then use those distortions as muscle against advertisers, thus depriving conservative media of potential revenue. Angelo Caruso, the leader of Media Matters, brags in his own profile of leading ad boycotts against Glenn Beck, of leading ad boycotts against Bill O'Reilly, of leading ad boycotts against Tucker Carlson, of leading ad boycotts against Fox News. This is a powerful, although corrupt, a powerful institution in attempting to silence free speech through manipulation, fraud, lies by depriving a media company of revenue. What have they alleged against Elon Musk? They have alleged that he has participated in an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and that he has hosted pro-Nazi propaganda on X that no respectable advertiser would ever be content to see their brand associated. Media Matters put together in Elon Musk's characterization a contrived account separate from their Media Matters account where they curated content, white nationalist, racist, pro-Nazi content. And then once they had that feed curated, created by them, they refreshed their feed, in some cases as many as, I don't know how many times, but served ads According to Elon Musk, and apparently, I would assume, his deep dive into the algorithm behind X, 13 times more than a normal account in order to increase the probability that you would get an ad from Apple showing up against their curated feed of pro-Nazi speech, pro-Nazi propaganda, pro-Nazi posts. And by doing so, then they could take a screenshot and use it to shame, to threaten, to muscle big advertisers on X. There's also some suggestions out there that perhaps some of these examples of ads appearing next to ugly, hateful tweets were in fact photoshopped. Musk, for his part, says after looking at the algorithm, even though they refreshed the feed some 13 times, the normal number of times an ad would be subjected to content, in order to get one of these big advertisers to appear next to one of these tweets, he can see that in most of these cases, those hateful tweets 
were actually only seen by one, two, or three people. And one of those people seen, seeing the ads was the account owner. So you're talking about not just negligible, but almost non-existent impressions for advertisers against this hateful speech. Musk goes on to say that any type of genocidal content, he gives two examples, anybody saying from the river to the sea, genocidal against Jews. He also said anyone using the term decolonization, which he said is a genocidal term against whites, would be banned from Twitter. But in order to protect free speech, he laid out the case that we're going to have to protect offensive and even hateful speech. It's the only sentry to put at the outskirts of the fortress. There's no one that you can entrust to decide what is racist, what is anti-Semitic. His critics contend that Elon Musk, in fact, has been anti-Semitic. Why is that? Because there was a post of, I believe, an unknown or little-known user saying something to the extent that Many prominent Jewish groups have indulged the same type of dichotomy of blaming so many things on hateful whites that is now being wielded against them in anti-Semitic speech um, when it comes to these pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian groups today. Elon Musk replied in response to that user, you have said an actual truth. This sort of set off the anti-Semitic firestorm. Musk went on to clarify, I'm not talking about all Jewish people having curried this anti-white environment. But he said groups like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, have for years endorsed this view that anything Western or white is inherently oppressive or racist. And as such, they've laid the groundwork for this to be used against them as a weapon in anti-Semitic speech. Now, Elon Musk is certainly out there in having a conversation that's not being had in on very many forums. And he was defended by the likes of Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire and famous investor Bill Ackman, saying Elon Musk is not anti-Semitic, and in fact, he is right about the way that many of these lefts, these groups on the left, including the Anti-Defamation League, have laid the groundwork for where they arrive at today by not just indulging, but fostering anti-white rhetoric for many years. It's also clearly an attack on free speech. No one cared about old Twitter, these advertisers. Disney, Discovery, Lionsgate didn't seem to care about old Twitter when they were very quick to censor conservative speech, but very slow in at all addressing child pornography. That did not inspire an ad boycott from IBM. What more, this concern over anti-Semitism doesn't seem to have bled over to what most are characterizing as rampant anti-Semitic speech on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram. No, no, no. It's isolated to X. What that means is, essentially, you're giving away the game. The concern is not over anti-Semitism. The concern is over unfettered speech. 
because unfettered speech represents a threat to power. There's been an ideological stranglehold on power in mainstream media and social media through the government for the better part of half a decade. And it's been wielded. It's been wielded, no doubt, to swing a presidential election. I give you, as just one example, the censorship of the story over Hunter Biden's laptop. But what is now under threat in this boycott is in response to the threat, not of hateful speech, but of the potential loss of that ideological stranglehold on power. And that takes us back to the January 6th tapes, something that was controlled, curated, manipulated by the likes of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney through the mainstream media channels where you're only allowed to see a part of the picture. Now, I don't know exactly how to characterize the full events of January 6th, but I know that I've been given a manipulated, exaggerated, hyperbolic description and vision, a slice of the pie of what happened on January 6th. Does that change the outcome? Does that change our judgment of that day? Well, not until we know the answer to some questions, some questions that existed then, and some questions that are only more valid today after being exposed to the 40,000 hours from January 6th. Questions like, why was this information hidden? Why was this not part of the January 6th Inquisition on Capitol Hill? Does there need to be a new Inquisition investigation into January 6th? Why? Why would you form such an extreme characterization at the detriment of a fuller more truthful picture. If you only tell me part of a story, I begin to question whether the veracity of that story and your motivations for not sharing with me the other parts of that story, how much of what happened on January 6th was instigated by government agents. There have been credible, not just allegations, but questions asked from United States senators to Capitol Police, to the FBI, about whether or not the FBI had people in the crowd that day, whether or not there were federal agents in the masses around the Capitol on January 6th. How many, if any, feds were involved that day at the Capitol? These questions not only remain, these questions remain important because we know now We have been given a partial picture. Now we need a full picture. And that is the only way we arrive at the truth. That is what we have the best chance of achieving on X. A full, unfettered forum for free speech. And that is why we'll be watching as Elon Musk goes thermonuclear. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals, 
to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Story number two. It is now illegal to be gay in public in Tennessee. And other lies. California Gavin Newsom tweeted late last week the following. A city in Tennessee has banned being gay in public. This is just the beginning. We have to call this out. This is big news. It's now illegal in Tennessee to be gay in public. Pretty shocking, right? Two gay guys holding hands, walking down the street, straight to jail in Tennessee. Someone should alert the press. Someone should alert the activists. This is big news. It's so big that some alarm bells should go off. Some red flags should fly. It's so outrageous, it's hard to believe. It's so over the top, you know that it is false. It's so absurd that it's actually comedic. Gavin Newsom tweeted that out because the city of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, passed an indecency law criminalizing public indecency, sexual conduct in public. Originally, when Murfreesboro, Tennessee passed this law, the language read, sexual conduct means acts of masturbation, homosexuality, sexual intercourse, or physical contact with a person's clothed or unclothed genitals, pubic area, buttocks, or of such person be a female breast. Now, why did Murfreesboro, Tennessee include the word homosexual in that list of potentially indecent behaviors? I don't know. I think the most charitable and I actually believe the most accurate explanation is it was looking to be all-encompassing on indecent public displays of sexual conduct. I am highly suspicious of anyone that would believe that means it's illegal to be gay in public in 2023. But I don't have to speculate because Murfreesboro, Tennessee, perhaps concerned that that language was over-encompassing or unnecessarily specific, amended their law earlier this month. On November 2nd, I believe, they amended the law to read as follows, whereas the city periodically must update its ordinances consistent with current law in the interest of properly regulating public conduct, 
The Murfreesboro City Code is amended by deleting the word homosexuality from the definition of sexual conduct. First reading, October 19th, 2023. Second reading, November 2nd, 2023. So Gavin Newsom tweets on approximately November 16th or 17th with that information available that a city in Tennessee has banned being gay in public. It's not the first time we've seen something like this where a law has been distorted, diminished, chopped down, made a fraud, and sold to low-information voters out there that the United States of America is turning into a handmaid's tale. You remember in 2016, North Carolina passed a law, a law which seems eminently reasonable today, and certainly not one of crazed defense, that boys should use boys' restrooms and girls should use girls' restrooms. The definition of boys and girls should follow the gender assigned to you at birth. That, of course, caused everyone to freak out, including everyone on ESPN at the time that I was broadcasting on that sports network. Oh my gosh, how can North Carolina force you to go to the bathroom of your genitals? How could North Carolina forced you to go to the bathroom of your chromosomes. It was so outrageous that the NBA pulled their all-star game out of Charlotte. A few years later, in Georgia, after 2020, with increased emphasis and interest in voter integrity laws, Georgia passed laws limiting drop-off drop mail-in ballot drop boxes and increased necessity for voter ID. That was described by Stacey Abrams one time, several time, Georgia gubernatorial candidate as Jim Crow 2.0. Not content to let her have the spotlight, now President Joe Biden said it's Jim Eagle. Here's Georgia, now worse than the Jim Crow days of the 1950s. What happened in Georgia shortly after was voter turnout surpassed even that of 2020. No suppression, no minority suppression in the voters of Georgia. Integrity at the ballot box goes up. And oh, guess what happens in 2023? After having pulled their all-star game out of Atlanta amidst this return to segregation era South, Major League Baseball, some three years later, with the laws remaining exactly the same, has announced they are going to return and have their all-star game in Georgia. What changed in three years? Not the laws. Major League Baseball bent to the bullshit of Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden. They bent to the outrageously ridiculous, bordering on comedic characterizations of a law, and now return under those exact same conditions to Georgia. Florida is no stranger to this phenomenon. If you'll remember, they once made it illegal to say gay in Florida. Remember the don't say gay bill? That was a bill in Florida that said kindergartners through fifth grade, I believe, I think it was fifth grade, shouldn't have their teachers talking to them about their sexuality, about inappropriate sexual conversations for kindergartners through, I can't remember if it was third or fifth grade. I mean, I want to make it higher. I, I, I don't know when, I can't think of a, an appropriate scenario for a teacher to be talking to these young kids about sexuality. But that was digested 
internalized and regurgitated to the masses and the low information voters across the country as it's now illegal to say gay in Florida. It's a don't say gay bill. Similarly, when Governor Ron DeSantis said, we're not going to have CRT, you know, cancerous DEI in our high school curriculum, AP courses. We're not going to let this systemic racism nonsense of forcing every teenager to see the world through oppressed and oppressed make its way into its for- the formal education in Florida. Now, that caused Kamala Harris to say Ron DeSantis says there's redeeming things about slavery and Stephen A. Smith to say he's doing away with African-American history. It is chewed up, digested, internalized, and vomited back up as the return of Bull Connor racism, this time as Ron DeSantis in Florida. In actuality, all that law did is say, we're going to continue to teach African-American history. We're just not going to do the new Ibram X. Kendi version of African-American history, which includes intersectionality on every potential collision course of identity and humanity, and make that part of advanced placement. This is what's done over and over. A lie is sold to the public, and low-information voters think they are facing a handsmaid's tale in America. And there's never any accountability. Never. Speaking of accountability, let me just show you two other things. There's never accountability on. You know, during the height of COVID, everyone had to get a COVID vaccine. Vaccine mandates came in, specifically from the government. The United States Army let go of soldiers, said goodbye to our military. Under the pretense that you weren't military ready if you didn't have a COVID vaccine. At the time, the Army sent out a a directive from the Secretary, Christine Wormuth, that said the following. Army readiness depends on soldiers who are prepared to train, deploy, fight, and win our nation's wars. Unvaccinated soldiers present risk to the force and jeopardize readiness. We will begin involuntary separation proceedings for soldiers who refuse the vaccine order and are not pending a final decision on an exemption. That was February of 2022. Here we are, fall of 2023. War in Europe, war in the Middle East, and the United States Army is saying, hey, think maybe you'd come back? Army Director of Personnel General Hope Rampey sent out this letter. Dear former service member, we write to notify you of new Army guidance regarding the correction of military records for former members of the Army following rescission of the COVID-19 vaccination requirement. As a result of the rescission of all current COVID-19 vaccine requirements, former soldiers who were involuntarily separated for the refusal to receive the COVID-19 vaccination may request a correction of their military records. You know, by the way, I don't know, maybe we might have world wars. Would you come back and help us fight? Insanity. Insanity and weakness overtook our society. Not everybody was as insane. I mean, a society did go insane through COVID. We we're ruled by fear. But often that fear is really just weakness of people who just need to go along to get along. That's what happened to our children. Let us never forget, and I would propose, nah, the better nature in me doesn't want to say this, but can we ever forgive? The New York Times writes this weekend, headline, the startling evidence on learning loss is in. 
Here's a quote from the New York Times editorial board. The evidence is now in, and it is startling. The school closures that took 50 million children out of classrooms at the start of the pandemic may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education. That's the New York Times. May prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education. It also set student progress in math and reading back by two decades and widened the achievement gap that separates poor and wealthy children. The learning loss crisis is more consequential than many elected officials have yet acknowledged. A collective sense of urgency by all Americans will be required to avert its most devastating effects on the nation's children. You know who knew this? You know who knew this in real time? Everyone. Everyone but the New York Times and the CDC and the Teachers Union and Randy Weingarten and Dr. Anthony Fauci. Everyone knew the damage we were doing to our children. Why? Because most of us had children at home sitting over a computer for a year and a half. So today, the New York Times wants to come to a revelation that we all knew. Back on the Will Cain Show on ESPN Radio, we had accountability bowls. If you were wrong, including myself, you were brought in for an accountability bowl. I want public accountability bowls. I want tribunals for the military, for education, for the CDC, for media, and oh yes, for Dr. Anthony Fauci, for these lies that are never held accountable. And I want people to understand that you're being manipulated by the likes of Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, who cleaned up the city of San Francisco for three days when he was visited by the Chinese Communist Party's leader, Xi Jinping. In one week, he got the homeless tents. He got the human feces. He got the fentanyl zombies all off the street of San Francisco. For Chairman Z. And once Chairman Z left, right back in floods the fentanyl zombies and the homeless tents. What kind of message does that send to Americans? You don't matter. Chairman Z of the Chinese Communist Party, oh, he matters. He matters very much. He matters enough to clean this up, as exhibited by the behavior of Governor Gavin Newsom. They will tell you lies to control your mind, to control your world, the medicines you put in your body, the access to your employment, the education of your children, the relationship with your fellow American. And in this particular lie, I would ask Governor Gavin Newsom, oh, it's now illegal to be gay in public in Tennessee? This is a public indecency law, Governor. Are you saying that it is indecent to be gay? Governor, are you saying that all gay people perform public intercourse are guilty of indecency? Explain to me, please, Governor Newsom, explain to me how a city in Tennessee has banned being gay in public and how this is just the beginning. This should be the end although I am highly doubtful that it is the end, I think it probably is the beginning of your spotlight in the public eye 
I imagine you're going to be under a much brighter spotlight very soon as you run for president of the United States. But this should be the end of your ability to stand in that spotlight. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number three. Chaos and game theory in college football. All right, you're going to have to forgive me. This is going to be largely seen through the prism of a homer, but it's also going to be a little bit messy because we are headed into potentially massive chaos, massive debate, and massive game theory in college football. Just one week in the college football regular season remains, and after that, you have conference championship games, and we can already see some form taking shape. The AP poll of top 25 teams is out, and it looks something like this right now. Georgia, number one. Ohio State, number two. Michigan, number three. Washington, number four. Florida State, five. Oregon, six. Texas, seven. Alabama, eight. The college football playoff poll will come out later this week. But the one week remaining left in the regular season is rivalry week. We have some pretty good games this week, and here's a, here's a sampling. You've got Oregon, Oregon State. Oregon is a one-loss team still in contention for the college football playoff. You have Texas, Texas Tech. Texas needs to win out, win the Big 12 to remain in the debate for the college football playoff. You've got Alabama, Auburn. Washington, Washington State. Florida State, Florida. Georgia, Georgia Tech, Clemson, South Carolina. I mention that because the nephew's been starting now for about three or four games at Clemson at right guard, number 55 in your program, number one in your heart, and he's doing very well. I say that through completely objective eyes. He's doing very, very well starting as a freshman, as an offensive lineman at Clemson, who's on a huge winning streak and can finish out the season against South Carolina here to go eight and four. And you have the big game of the weekend. As we head into this holiday week, Thanksgiving weekend, you have the big game, Ohio State versus Michigan. Now, I've begun to think about this. How does this all shake out? I just gave you the top eight teams. Well, Ohio State and Michigan are going to play each other. You're going to end up with a one-loss, non-conference championship game team in the Big Ten. The loser of Ohio State-Michigan won't make the Big Ten championship game, who will go on I believe, to play Iowa in the Big Ten Championship game. Here's my first contention. The loser of the game this weekend, Ohio State and Michigan, is out of the college football playoff. It doesn't matter how good their season has been. They drop to one loss. They don't make their conference championship game. I don't see the argument they will have against any other one-loss team. We can do the thing that the committee is supposed to do and say, who is the better team? But resume has to matter. And everyone else's resume is also going to have a lot of merit. And I don't think a loser, a one-loss team who doesn't make their conference championship game in the Big Ten remains in the debate. So give one playoff spot to the Big Ten. There's always the scenario of, say, let's say Ohio State beats Michigan and Ohio State goes to the Big Ten championship game and then loses to Iowa. Now you've got two one-loss Big Ten teams. But I still think... In that scenario, one loss Ohio State, loser of the Big Ten championship game, beating Michigan who never makes a championship game, goes in ahead of Michigan. So the point I'm getting at is, at most, one Big Ten team makes the college football playoff. 
And then you have the SEC. Now, assuming that Georgia and Alabama survive rivalry weekend, Georgia beats Georgia Tech and Alabama beats Auburn, you have a scenario where I believe the winner of the SEC championship game, Alabama or Georgia, goes to the college football playoff. But similar to the Big Ten, not the loser. Of course, if Alabama loses, sending them to two losses on the season, they're out. But let's say Alabama beats Georgia. What do you do with a one-loss Georgia team? Here's a debate specifically. What about one-loss Georgia against one-loss Big 12 champion Texas? Who do you take? In that scenario, Georgia's probably lost to Alabama. Texas beat Alabama. No matter how much we think of Georgia, can you make an argument for a team that didn't win their conference championship, same number of losses, lost to a team the other team beat to go into the college football playoff? I don't think that you can make that argument. I know I have burnt orange colored glasses, but I think it probably same thing applies to this scenario. Can you take one loss Georgia over Pac-12 champion, one loss Oregon? I don't think that you can. In this scenario, Oregon beats Oregon State in rivalry weekend and also goes on to beat Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. Can you take Georgia over Oregon? I don't think that you can. Florida State, if they win out, gets one of the other spots. If Florida State loses and they just lost their starting quarterback to a horrific leg injury, if Florida State loses, they are out. One loss, Florida State doesn't remain in the debate. The ACC is too weak. But undefeated Florida State, in. Undefeated Washington, in. That takes us to the Pac-12. The If Oregon beats Washington, sending Washington to one loss, they're out. But Oregon's in. And you may end up with a debate in that scenario where it's Florida State, Georgia or Alabama, Ohio State or Michigan, and a debate between Big 12 champion Texas and Pac-12 champion Oregon. Who goes in that scenario? Right now, Oregon is ranked ahead of Texas. We're headed for chaos. So I need to get my scenarios and my debate, which I think I've narrowed that debate down. I think it is one loss Georgia against a Pac-12 or Big 12 champion. And I can leave that to you, Will Kane podcast at fox.com. Or a direct debate between, for one spot, Pac-12 champion against Big 12 champion. That specifically would be Oregon against Texas. Because if Washington wins out, they're in. I told you it would get confusing. But we're really two games out. The game theory is not that hard. The game theory is not that hard. One spot for the SEC, one spot for the Big 10. And then either a spot for the Pac-12 and the Big 12. Or you let Georgia have one of those. Or Florida State takes one of those. And then you have a Georgia debate against one of those Pac-12 or Big 12 champions. All I know is this. When I boil it all down, I need the following to occur. I don't care what happens in the SEC. I don't care what happens in the Big 10. They both get one team in. I need Florida State to lose. The producer of this podcast, Patrick Hatton, is a big Florida State fan. Sorry, Patrick. I need Florida State to lose. I need a spot vacated. That's the only way I can see one pure spot vacated. If Oregon beats Washington, Oregon takes Washington's spot in the top four. 
That's what happens with Alabama and Georgia. That's what happens with Ohio State and Michigan. They take the previous person's spot. So the only way to truly vacate a spot is for Florida State to lose. I need that to happen. And then just to keep Georgia out of the debate, I don't want people sitting there going, Georgia or Texas, because I know a lot of people are like, Georgia's the better team. I'm going to have to go ahead and root for Georgia to win out. I don't care what happens in the Big Ten. And that's how I get Texas into the college football playoff. It's going to be a fun rivalry weekend here on Thanksgiving weekend, and that will be the big game, Ohio State versus Michigan. Then we come back together before championship weekend, begin the debate, and then we go bananas debating each other about who gets the four spots. Luckily, next year, we go to a 12-team playoff. That's going to do it for me today here on the Will Kane Podcast. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.